Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Brodo Fantasy Football Podcast presented by BrotoFantasy.com and the Fantasy Football by Brodo app, the only tool you need to dominate fantasy football. And that, my friends, is the last time you will hear Tim's sweet voice serenading us today because I am flying solo on this podcast as the Dynasty Dawn brings you a special Dynasty mailbag episode. Obviously going to cover some player news as we always do, recap a little bit of the conference championships um, and focus on the top three wide receivers coming into the 2023 class, uh, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Jordan Addison, Quentin Johnson. Look at their dynasty profiles, maybe what their NFL trajectory is going to be, and uh, a little bit of what we can expect from them coming into the combine and draft season. And yeah, finish up with a dynasty mailbag from the Patreons. And if you want to be a part of these episodes where you can get questions in and have your dynasty questions answered and your teams combed over by me and the Brodo crew, head over to patreon.com slash Fantasy and make sure you you know, get in on those perks uh, for as little as $3 a month. That stuff is fire. Best community ever. Discord is always popping. Um, I absolutely love the community that they built in that Discord and, and the people that we have there. Some of the t- most amazing top-notch people in the community um, in general. So, yeah, head over there, check that stuff out. And we don't have Donnie H with us today, unfortunately, um, but we are just going to hop right into some player news. I think the first two things that we should talk about, I guess, I mean, they're not even really player related, uh, except for the players that they will affect. And that's uh, D'Amico Ryan signing a big contract as the Texans head coach. Essentially, immediately after the 49ers were eliminated, he went through his interviewing process very quickly. Um, They got the guy that they wanted, and I think he can really bring a winning culture as he's obviously helped maintain one in San Francisco um, to that team. And they have some really nice defensive pieces as he's a defensive minded coach that they can work with. Like if you've listened to this podcast before, I've been very high and, and praised Derek Stingley and Jalen Peters, two incredible defensive backs in the NFL and, and up and coming stars. And, and I think that he can really turn that defense into something special over the years with the allotment of draft capital that they have. And, and hopefully obviously this year that they get a franchise quarterback that is able to make an NFL difference in CJ Stroud or Bryce young. Yeah. Very excited for that team. And the big one, Sean Payton signs with the Broncos or I guess gets traded to the Broncos because the Saints still had his rights until 2025. Um, They trade a first round pick, a second round pick in the following year, and the Saints give them a third. Um, I mean, if Sean Payton can turn Russell Wilson around, bring relevance to Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, uh, Javante Williams gets healthy. You know, obviously Sean Payton is an incredible offensive minded coach and an incredible head coach in general, won a Super Bowl with the Saints um, in what was not the most talented roster and, and beat a Peyton Manning led Colts to do so with, for those that forget, one of the most memorable and ballsy calls in the history of Super Bowls where he called an onside kick to open up the second half that the Saints happened to recover. Um Yeah, I think it's an excellent addition for the Broncos if it works out, but there's no way that you can deny that the Saints get nothing or had nothing, and now they get something. Yes, it's a very late first in in what could probably be a late second um, in the following year, but they didn't have a first-round pick as that pick was allocated to trade up for Chris Olave, and they had a head coach that didn't want to coach for them anymore and, and was much more willing to take a big contract with television. So I think that's good for the Saints. You you get something out of nothing um obviously fans uh, as i am one uh, of the saints would have liked to seen him maybe you know 
convinced the Cardinals to throw that that money at him, and we were able to take a higher pick where the Cardinals had crapped out this year. But I, I think for the most part, we should be happy having no first round picks and no head coach <laughs> turning into a first round and a second round pick. So it's pretty good for the Saints. Um, player news coming out. I guess the most important one for the upcoming game, obviously, uh, the Super Bowl, is that Nicole Hardman is unlikely to play. He was having a nice kind of stretch to end out the season. But once again, as as does happen with Nicole often, is he's dealing with some injuries that are kind of capping his development and his ability to impact his team. He will likely sit out the Super Bowl. Brock Purdy tore his UCL in that NFC Championship game, which explains a lot more why he wasn't able to um, perform at all, even though he entered the game and was essentially just a handoff robot. Um, and I certainly don't want a victory lap injuries. Like that's not what I'm trying to do here, but it was, it seemed incredibly obvious after that Cowboys game um, where yes, Dak Prescott is a much better quarterback than I think the media is allowing you to believe, but those two interceptions certainly did cost them that game. And, and the Cowboys defense played, Brock Purdy in the 49ers offense about as perfectly as you can. The Eagles defense is better than the Cowboys and they bring a lot more pressure up front. Brock Purdy in that offensive line was eventually going to break and it happened very quickly where Hassan Reddick was able to get to him in a high pressure situation and inevitably knock him out of the game. I think the Eagles being heavily slept on. I guess hopping into a little bit of the NFC championship recap. I think the Eagles are heavily slept on as Super Bowl potentials, especially against yeah Patrick Mahomes played his ass off in, in that AFC championship game but a lot of favorable call favorable calls you could say um and and some sketchy refing maybe uh it, it is what it is but the Chiefs outplayed the Bengals and they won that game I don't know that they're going to be able to do so against the Eagles um two weeks to prepare and, and to heal up that ankle could be the all the difference uh absolutely but the way that the Eagles are steamrolling through teams and, and their path to the Super Bowl has you know, a lot of people are discrediting it as it's looked so easy. And yeah, they played Brock Purdy. Well, the 49ers overtook the Eagles as Super Bowl favorites in the NFC Championship um, uh, shortly after that Cowboys win. So I, I don't know what people are getting on about there. Yes, the Eagles odds makers did uh, switch that again. But point being is that the 49ers were heavily favored to win the NFC at one point. <clears throat> and I think the Eagles proved that they are much better than given credit for and, and certainly um should at least be a, a pick'em matchup with the Chiefs, I think. Some more, I guess, important player news as far as, you know, free agency is coming up and stuff. Um, Cam Akers is, is reportedly going to be a big part of the Rams offensive front moving forward. And the reason that I wanted to bring that up, obviously this being a Dynasty episode, is, is Cam Akers was somebody that was essentially a cut candidate, even in dynasty leagues, or at the very least, somebody that, you know, you would take a third round pick or, or a very late second in, in a combo to to get him off of your rosters, as he really showed no relevance to upside. And then a switch seemingly happened towards the end of the season. And K-Makers became an absolute beast in the fantasy playoffs and, and down the stretch and looked much healthier, obviously, um, than that Achilles injury seemingly showed us through the beginning of the season. Um, and obviously last playoffs or last year's playoffs during the Rams Super Bowl run where he was incredibly atrocious, averaging less than two and a half yards per carry, but he looked much, much better and was obviously utilized in a workhorse role, which we know Sean McVay is incredibly 
friendly to do. He he can turn almost any running back into a fantasy friendly asset. So I think that's something to worth noting for Cam Akers, especially if people are still down on him. And with this 2023 class coming in so hot and a lot of probably over adjustments being made on the market for rookies, uh, Cam Akers might still be a sneaky buy low if you could throw potentially a late second at him still. Um, I, I think that he could show some upside there because the Rams don't have much cap. I think they're going to bring Stafford back. He said he's not retiring. Um, and Cam Akers could have himself a workhorse role in 2023. So that's something to look out for, for sure. Um, that pretty much covers up the player news. We're quick. We're in, we're out. And I think Mike would be really happy. And I think Tim would appreciate it too, because we got the important coaching news out. And we want to get right into the meat and potatoes, folks. I want to open up some dynasty profiles for you. I've been doing some early dynasty work. And a lot of this stuff, I, I think it should be noted that this is rough cut stuff. Yes, we have a lot of finished analytics. Um, and, and these guys are shaping up nicely in, in our databases as three wide receivers that could make an impact in the NFL and be high quality dynasty assets for years to come. But draft capital, combine, the process in and of itself, their interviews, how teams view them, more information will come out, will certainly change these things. Now, I have them in similar tiers. They're all first-round picks. They should all be taken in the top six, I would assume. Um, speak Jackson Smith and Chigba, Jordan Addison, Quinton Johnson. And I think they're going to hold that value. The first guy I want to look into, of course, is Jordan Addison. We're, we're not going to get into the the, the big pro... Um, polarizing name yet with, with JSN, but I, I really want to touch on Jordan Addison because he measures in at six foot 170. He's 20 years old. He was an early declare. So he only played three years, broke out at 19 and boy, what a breakout in 2021. He's a first team, all AEC uh, consensus, all American. He won the Belitnikoff award at, for being the best receiver in the NCAA uh, 2021 ACC champion with Kenny Pickett on the team. They won the division um, NCAA receiving touchdown leader in 2021. And in 2022, he was first team all pack, but certainly regressed a little bit as he transferred from Pitt to uh, USC. Got a quarterback upgrade as well. Caleb Williams is one of the more impressive quarterback prospects that you will ever see on a, a football field and certainly better than Kenny Pickett. But Addison regressed from an overall standpoint. He still averaged 2.78 per yards per route run in 2022. That was 11th among 136 draft eligible wide receivers who saw at least 50 targets. That's a little fun stat. He generated a seventh ranked 139.0 passer rating when targeted. So when they were getting him the ball, and if you look at his route percentages on, on PFF, there seems to be a lot of empty routes being run from Jordan Addison and he did have a lingering hamstring and quad injury and it's very difficult to find solidified injury data in NCAA so you know the questionable tag coming in and things like that that we get in the NFL we don't really get that in college football we get parse data and part of the problem with that is you don't know if he was super limited in practices in some of these games he was just playing you know the deep route decoy um but worth noting that in Pitt, he played primarily in the slot and switched up to primarily outside at USC. And that could be a product of, or his regression could obviously be a product of the new role, the transfer into a new system, into a new quarterback. But I also believe it's a product of his inability to stay completely healthy. And some of the games that he did play, his opportunity share regressed way below his route percentages, which wasn't really the norm in games that he was producing. Now he's played a, over 1100 snaps 
in the slot and 757 snaps out wide. He's at over 1,200 yards at both positions per PFF. And for perspective, he's not just a slot receiver by any means. For a career total of a 57.9% slot rate and a 41.6% wide rate, Jackson Smith and Jigba has had an 88.6% slot rate and 11.1% wide rate. And even if you want to label him Addison as a primarily slot receiver, that's not a bad thing. Slot receivers produce, especially for fantasy. And one of these reasons that we're doing these scouting profiles is obviously for production purposes. I'm not overly concerned, as long as the draft capital attaches, how the NFL view slot receivers if the targets are there, if the production is there. And in 2021, in 14 games played, he had 100 receptions, averaging 15.9 yards per. That's a 27.24% market share of the team's receptions. On 144 targets, 26.6% target share. 1,593 receiving yards led the NCAA with 17 touchdowns, 2.9 receiving yards per team pass attempt, 1.56 receiving yards per team attempt. And one of the reasons, I'll, I'll get into that, why I break down receiving yards per team pass attempt and per team attempt is a lot of people would like to argue that receiving yards per team pass attempt is more important for wide receivers because they're not involved in the run game. And my argument to that is if a wide receiver is good enough, they're not going to run the ball as much because the system will cater to the fact that they have an absolute superstar stud wide receiver. If they also have an absolute superstar stud running back, then you have to play a little bit of the narrative game and try and figure out a little bit more of the market share discrepancies there. Pardon me, the market share discrepancies there. But when a wide receiver has a very high receiving yards per team pass attempt, but a very low receiving yards per team attempt, which isn't the case with Addison, but when that is the case, you can be slightly concerned because it's not just a matter of his market share of the team receiving yards being high, but it's a concern for the market share of the team's total yards being low. Because if he was truly that dominant where that market share would hold up at an NFL level, then that offense in college because the competition is lower should be scheming for that player because those schemes are much easier to write. And if they're not doing that and they're force feeding a lesser running back, that is going to be a potentially fifth round pick or undrafted player, then you should view those wide receivers differently. In 2022, yes, Jordan Addison regressed. Only 11 games played though. 59 receptions, 14.83 yards per reception. That was a 171 percent market share of the team's receptions 83 targets 16.1 percent share 875 receiving yards eight touchdowns 1.69 receiving yards per team pass attempt and this is where it is a little worrying 0.88 receiving yards per team attempt now again the regression with addison i think can be certainly taken into account and is certainly Worrisome, but is it a red flag? No, because collegiate career bests are absolutely beautiful. And career bests, you like to take into consideration the age in which they did it. If a player's, all of a player's career best came as a senior in his final season and he was a 22 year old dominating 18 year old freshman, then that's a little different. But all of Addison's collegiate career best came in his 18 and 19 year old season 26.6% target share, 26.6% targets per route run, a 99.8% route participation when he was at Pitt, which obviously dropped off massively. 22%. He ran only 77.8% of the routes, uh, the team's routes when he was at USC. Collegiate career best of 2.94 receiving yards per team pass attempt and a collegiate career best of 1.98 receiving yards per team attempt. 2.94 yards per route run, 33.7% of the team's receiving yards and 
PPR points per game at college. That puts him in a pretty impressive top NFL comparison. And now without draft capital, without combine, and also the listed measurements of six foot 170, he could be much shorter when it comes to the combine. He could be 5'10 and 165. And, and yes, those size concerns would put him more in a range of a Marquise Brown, Tyler Lockett potentially. But Top NFL comparisons are, are pretty favorable for Jordan Addison as of right now. Jerry Judy, Brandon Ayuk, Tyler Lockett, Devontae Smith, Juju Smith-Schuster, Rashad Bateman, Corey Davis, and Tyler Boyd. And for those to be your first round of NFL comparisons is pretty decent before draft capital comes in. Now, it's easy to say that he does everything well, but those cliches are kind of true for any of the top wide receivers in this class. And, and he really does. He has some of the best hands in the country, dropped just two of uh, 62 catchable targets as pff tracks those um over the season and much improved from his first two seasons but that was also a case of volume we do see obviously drop numbers are going to increase when you're having 135 150 targets weaknesses size concern absolutely um and there can be some concern said depending on the narrative over whether you think it was the transfer the learning the new system that he's not capable of uh, maintaining that production on the outside. There is a little bit of concern with that, that he might just be able to function in the slot. But for fantasy, that still gives us an Amon Ross, St. Brown type outlook. Um, guys that are seemingly a little underrated, undersized, but incredibly productive when they're given the targets and are massive target earners because of how quick their release is and, and how good they get off the line in those shorter yard situations in the slot. I think his best NFL fit is every single team that needs him. And Jordan Addison is, he's prime, he's ready. He's probably the most NFL-ready prospect, as scouts like to say. So you can put that into perspective as a guy like Chris Olave. He might not get the highest draft capital of this class. That could go to an athletic freak like Quentin Johnson, or people could ignore Jackson Smith and Jigba's health concerns and his downfall as a junior. Um, but he might not get the highest draft capital, but he is going to make the biggest impact right away. He probably can fit into every single system in the NFL because he can function both on the slot and obviously showed high production, putting up 1,200 yards on the outside as well. I think Addison should, for my money, be the top drafted wide receiver with the questions that the other two have. I don't know that the NFL is going to feel that way with size concerns, but that kind of brings me to my last point before we hop into Jackson Smith and Jigba is the NFL isn't concerning size as much as it used to. We've seen several of the top wide receivers in the last few draft classes and most productive for that matter, be what is labeled as a prototypical undersized guy, a Devonte Smith, a Jalen Waddle. You saw Marquise Brown dominate target shares for the Ravens and do so when he was healthy for the Cardinals as well. Marquise is a superstar. Um, and, and these, these smaller guys, it, it's no longer becoming an outlier thing. And I think that's because the league is getting smaller. The league is getting faster. It's getting safer. So bigger players in high contact and high impact situations don't change and impact the game that they in the same way that they used to. Um, and that opens up opportunities for guys like Jordan Addison, guys like Devontae Smith, guys like Jalen Waddle, and yeah, Tyreek Hill, but for those guys to no longer be outliers like Tyreek was, where they're willing to spend elite draft capital on these guys because times are changing. Um, that said, that pretty much wraps up Jordan Addison. We're going to hop right into the next one. Jackson Smith and Jigba is an absolute stud when it comes to every sense of the word. The issue was his health. And the issue is also a very small sample size because he didn't break out as a true freshman. He broke out as a tr true sophomore in his second season. Um, 
He's six foot, 196. He'll enter the draft at 20 years old. Yes, early declare, declare only three seasons. Breakout 19. And I think people are discounting him a little bit. And it certainly seems that way in, in kind of the Twitter, Twitter sphere and maybe overlooking it. I think they forget that he broke the single game reception record at Ohio State twice in the same season when he was only 19 with over 240 yards in both of those games with 15 receptions. He also set the single game receiving yards record in one of those games for Ohio State with 347. Most importantly, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, who have made a massive impact in the NFL immediately as rookies, were on the roster when JSN was putting up those numbers. And yeah, people like to point out that they both opted out for the Rose Bowl game. Well, that's pretty great because in week two is when Jackson Smith and Jigba put up 240 yards, 15 receptions, when they were certainly both on the field. And the game plan was very clearly, I should say the game scripts were very clearly still fresh. It was week two of the collegiate season. They were just getting the ball to the best player. Well, it looked like, and as they continued to do throughout the entire season, because he also broke the... Yeah. Um, he also led, sorry, the team in receptions, targets and receiving yards and receiving touchdowns that he was the best player on that squad. Now, his accolades are minimal um, because he only has the one big season. He was a five star recruit. 2019 won the high school Landry Award, which is the best player in Texas. And for those that know anything about college football or have watched a high school football movie in their life, Texas takes football very seriously. Uh, five star recruit committed to Ohio State, where he was a 2021 third-team All-American, 2021 third-team All-Big Ten, 2022 Rose Bowl MVP, uh, single-game OSU record for receptions twice, as I said, and single-season game OSU receiving yards record 1,606, led Ohio State that season in receiving yards targets and um, receptions. So in 2021, his, his full outlook is 13 games played, 95 receptions. He had a 27.2% receiving share um, with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave on the roster, 112 targets, 22.7% target share, 1,606 yards, nine touchdowns, 16.9 yards per reception, 3.26 receiving yards per team pass attempt, and 1.77 receiving yards per team attempt. That's when Travion Henderson was breaking out as well. So you know Jackson Smith is as legit as they get if you only look at that one season. There's an issue because there's not a lot of high-profile high productive players that didn't have a true freshman breakout that really only have one solid year. And yeah, the hamstring injury, the quad injury, the knee injury, the the litany of lower body injuries that kept him to only three games and a 2.2% target share is very concerning. It's concerning for a health thing because it lingered through all season. It's probably going to linger a bit into his testing and he's not the most athletic guy. That's certainly one of his weaknesses. His athletic testing is probably going to diminish his draft stock a bit. And although that 19 year old breakout is absolutely phenomenal and quite literally one of the best you'll ever see outside of Jamar Chase, it is cause for concern that it didn't continue or it didn't even happen earlier. I still think that Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be one of the most productive and high value dynasty wide receivers, but you can have, you have to bring up the flags. Um, collegiate career total, only 110 receptions, 133 targets, 1,698 yards. And as I just said, 1,606 of those yards came in one season, 10 total touchdowns, 9.3 yard average depth of target. That's quite low for the collegiate level, 413 total snaps, giving them an 18, um, or 88.6% slot rate, sorry, and 11.1% wide rate. 
collegiate career bests are very impressive, but they're not on Jordan Addison's level. And when you really start to look at things, 22.7% target share, a 28.1% target um, per route in his career best, which it, which was an 80.7% route participation. He um, topped out at 3.26 receiving yards per team pass attempt and 2.94 yards per route run with a 26% dominator in his best season. Those put him in a very favorable company of top analytic prospects of Jamar Chase, Elijah Moore, Rashad Bateman, but then some concerning ones as well. LaVisca Cheneau, Darnell Mooney, Jalen Rager, Corey Davis and Tyler Boyd are, are, are good comps, um, but they had great collegiate seasons and have been solid on their team roster. And Tyler Boyd, obviously a little more than Corey Davis here, but solid when Corey went healthy, sure. But solid for their team's rosters, but not really game changers in fantasy. And we're looking for game changers here if we're going to spend top five draft capital on these guys. His NFL role is clearly a big body slot receiver. I think his ceiling for outcomes is in the Keenan Allen range um, with even a bit more of a potential to break that mold of specifically a slot receiver and work a bit more to the outside if he can develop properly. But that's going to also fall into him being drafted in the right system in a team that is willing to develop that and, and has the length of a quarterback contract in the proper system to do so. Strengths are obviously a super productive slot receiver who led the team in all receiving categories in 2021 with two superstars. He's outstanding soft hands, very minimal drops. He can go up and get the ball. He doesn't have a poor vertical, but he's not the fastest separation guy. Definitely some nice route running skills, but lacks the athleticism in the same snap that a lot of these prototypical elite route runners um, that you would envision. Weaknesses, he's dominated, sure, but he doesn't have any elite traits as far as NFL scouts are concerned, and there can be a bit of a narrative to question the reasons that he dominated. Now, with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave in their final seasons before declaring for the NFL draft, who had both had superstar collegiate breakouts before that, were obviously going to draw the top two coverage assignments of every single defense that they faced, opening up Jackson Smith and Jigba to be a very easy short yardage low depth target for CJ Stroud and a dominating offense that no weapon could be stopped on. I still think you have to take into account the role and the production of Ohio State receiver pipeline. Sometimes it's okay to helmet scout these guys. If Jackson Smith and Jigba does get top 20 draft capital, he is another of a long line and a long list of Ohio State wide receivers that are going to be incredibly productive in the NFL because they've all been brought up through the same system of development, the same system of understanding NFL offenses in an NFL style offensive playbook and the draft process in and of itself. These kids know what it takes to become an NFL wide receiver. And it's just been over and over and over and over again. These Ohio state wide receivers over the last three years have been NFL fixtures. I don't think you should view Jackson Smith anyway, but I think if you want to bring up his cause for concerns, they are only reliant on health and the fact that he didn't overcome Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave when he was a true freshman at 18, 17, 18 years old, which is obviously a near impossible task. Um, that team was absolutely loaded. And, you know, and, and Emeka sharing that, Emeka Egbuka, who is, broke out as a true freshman and is having a, had a phenomenal sophomore season alongside Marvin Harrison Jr. And, and all of these names who were 
just consistent and going to be consistent NFL draft, top NFL draft prospects. Um, just because he fell off due to health concerns, I don't think it really should concern people as far as the draft capital that you're about to allocate. His best NFL fit is probably a team that needs a slot receiver immediately and has two guys that can at least handle the outside assignment while he develops that outside role more consistently. So that would fit to somebody like the Bills, um, who obviously have Gabe Davis playing his decoy role and a phenomenal asset in Stefan Diggs. The Ravens, I think, would be a great fit if they could develop Rashad Bateman, re-sign Lamar Jackson. Now they have a phenomenal slot and an outside guy that can take off uh, you know, and hopefully truly develop in his third year and the bears, of course, uh, reuniting with Justin Fields, that would be phenomenal for Jackson Smith and Jigba. And they need receiver help more than anybody in the NFL, arguably. And that's going to end it for JSN. That's going to bring us to my most confusing prospect. I honestly don't know how to feel about Quentin Johnson. I have him ranked as the wide receiver three right now. Things can change with draft capital and if he tests the way that people expect. Um, but I may almost expect somewhat of a trail on Burke situation where he's much more athletic on the field than he is going to test because sometimes, depending on, obviously, you know, who brings you through the process, your agent matters, the, the school that you, you know, go to and how their pro day um, development goes and, you know, the, the drills that they're getting you to run and, and how long post-season, because they did play all the way to the national championship, you continue that development and you're back in the facilities. All of those things matter. And there are nuances that we can't really track, but they do affect the way that these guys test at the comp on. Um, as, you know, Obvious as it sounds, it's one of those things that I think goes overlooked when you're looking at these prospects and their analytical profiles and kind of trying to rank them pre-draft and pre-combine as we are today. It goes without saying that Quentin Johnson is an athletic freak. Uh, out of TSU or TCU, sorry, <laughs> six foot four, two hundred fifteen pounds, twenty-one years old coming into the draft, a little older than our two previous mentioned. Um, wide receivers. He has a BMI of 26.2. So yeah, he's obese, but he a thick boy that run quick early declare breakout age in 19. He was a four star recruit. He led TCU in receiving yards as a true freshman. He led TCU in receiving yards and receiving touchdowns as a sophomore. That was only eight games played as well. Holds the big 12 record for most yards per reception in a single season at 22.8. He did so as a true freshman two time first team, all big 12. 2022 Fiesta Bowl winner and a Bolitnikoff Award semifinalist losing out to Marvin Harrison Jr. In 2020, he played just eight games, 22 receptions, 13.4% uh, reception share, which if that makes you wonder how he had a 13, that's my point. TCU for two years that Quentin Johnson was on the team didn't pass the ball. He had 41 targets. That was a 15.1% target share in only eight games, 486 seven receiving yards. We said that led the team Two touchdowns, 24.8% of the team's receiving yard share, 22.8 yards per reception, 1.79 receiving yards per team pass attempt. And here's where things get scary. 0.72 receiving yards per team attempt, 18.2% of the receiving touchdown share, but only 5.8% of the total touchdown share on the offense. In 2021, was when I think, you know, when Quentin Johnson really came on everyone's map, um, when he had all of those evaded tackles, missed tackles, um, and was really coming out as a yak monster and, and a big bodied guy that can dominate SEC defenses quietly, even though 
TCU wasn't really winning games. He played eight games in 2021, 33 receptions, 22.0% um, market share of the team's receptions, 61 targets, and 61 targets equated for 26.2% of the team's target share. Again, TCU just wasn't passing. He led the team with 634 receiving yards and six touchdowns. 634 receiving yards was 32.3% of the team's total receiving yard share. Which again brings us to the scary thing with Quentin Johnson. He had 2.25 receiving yards per team pass attempt in 2021, but only 0.81 receiving yards per team attempt total. 47.4% of the team's receiving touchdowns, 15% of the team's total touchdowns. There's another TCU receiver that people were very high on. That was an incredible deep threat that was vaunted with having great size and incredible speed that went really high in the NFL draft and was famously drafted ahead of the player that is in my, for my money, inarguably the best receiver in the NFL, young receiver in the NFL today and could go down as one of the true all-time greats. And that's Jalen Rager. Jalen Rager was also a analytical dream if you ignored the receiving yards per team attempt and focused only on receiving yards per team pass attempt. Now, TCU wasn't passing the ball, but when they started to, Max Duggan became a Heisman finalist and and Quentin Johnson became a Bolitnikoff finalist. In 2022, 14 games played, 60 receptions, 20.5% of the team's receiving, 86 targets 24.1 percent target share he had 1069 receiving yards the only season and the first in which he broke a thousand receiving yards six touchdowns 32.6 percent team receiving yard share 17.8 yards per reception 2.8 receiving yards per team pass attempt a little bit better here because he finally breaks the 1.00 threshold with 1.26 receiving yards per team attempt 18.2 percent of the team's receiving touchdowns but only 6.4% of the team's total touchdowns. So also, once TCU got better, they were also scoring more with Kendra Miller and also running more, and Max Duggan became a better rushing threat, and he was more accurate in general. So I think the biggest red flag of these three wide receivers is Quinton Johnson and the system in which he played in. Now, when a player is stuck in a system like that, it's certainly a detriment to their development, because they're not getting as many reps. You can't tell me that it's not. Whether he is earning those targets ahead of somebody else or not, because yes, he was leading the team in targets. Yes, leading the team in receptions and production. That's all great. But the repetitions are also important, especially when they're against SEC defenses. That's very important for a player's development. So he's coming in a little bit older with a little bit less usage and a little bit less repetition and a little bit less development. Now you can't match his athleticism if he tests the way that people think he will, being six foot four and, and probably close to 220 on combine day. Quentin Johnson is going to be a darling for NFL scouts. They love speed, they love size, and a darling for the dynasty community as well, because we love speed and we love size when it's also attached to top 15 draft capital. But his production profile, especially coming from TCU and, and not to helmet scout, but coming from TCU who didn't use pass the passing weapons when, when he was there and traditionally didn't before. And, and the one receiver that we saw kind of show very, very similar um, analytical traits to Quinton Johnson and the draft capital that we could dream of would be top 20, which is what Jalen Rager received. 
was one of the biggest busts in NFL history as, as far as, you know, the, the cost of allocation and the player that went immediately after him and what the Eagles would have needed. Now, obviously, Howie Roseman has done a phenomenal job of turning that one mistake around as the GM for the Eagles, but that's neither here nor there. Quinton Johnson shows some of those same red flags that people should have been picking up on Jalen Rager, and that's the fact that TCU wasn't using him because he wasn't ready and they didn't start utilizing the passing game until he was fully developed as a junior where he truly broke out and yes you can give him some market share rewards for his true freshman season where obviously we can grade that as a true breakout because he broke the the team or led the team with market share of um, receiving yards but having such minimal usage is certainly an indictment to the player I think if Jamar Chase was on that TCU offense, they'd be passing much, much more. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make. Um, Quentin Johnson, for all intents and purposes, is still a phenomenal prospect. His collegiate career bests are phenomenal. 26.2% targets, 27.7 targets per route, 99.8% route share in his best season, which was his final year, 2.96 receiving yards per team pass attempt. His final year, he finally broke the receiving yards per team attempt threshold at 1.26, 3.05 yards per route run, and a 39.9% dominator in his best season. That's top NFL comparisons put him in at the very height of his range of outcomes. Guys like Jerry Judy, Amon Ross St. Brown, CD Lamb, Gabe Davis, Alan Lazard as big body threats, but then there are some very unfavorable comparisons as well. Jalen Rager being one of his top comps, Nick Westbrook-Akine, Laquan Treadwell, other guys that got high draft cap, Nikhil Harry, other guys that got high draft capital and had positive analytic profiles, but didn't have the positive analytical outlook of receiving yards over team attempt, which you know really indicates that the team that they are playing for in college is willing to cater the system around their best player and if you can't break through that threshold does that mean you cannot be a productive nfl star no but it is cause for concern in comparison to other prospects that do smash both of those thresholds his biggest strength is obviously his after the catch ability um and to shrug off defenders at the point of attack he forced a total of 45 missed tackles across three seasons at tcu which is absolutely insane for a wide receiver that's i mean that's eighth amongst all power five conferences during that time in 2022 alone he forced 18 missed tackles in 13 games and several more during the tcu postseason run but that was just a regular season total so averaging over one forced missed tackle per game um quentin johnson is a much like, like a Debo Samuel. He's a running back in a, in a wide receiver's body. Um, but he is also a player that struggled with drops. <laughs> I, for all of his strengths, which was something that was a huge red flag that people love to ignore with Jalen Rager because of his opportunity share, um, was his trait. Um, he didn't just occasionally struggle with drops. Quentin Johnson dropped eight passes in 2023, which was 14th most in all of college football. Um, hopefully you're going to see him clean that up at the pro level, uh, especially with him probably being utilized as more of an under the seams, uh, short yardage target. Again, uh, Debo Samuel, hopefully as being one of the top comps of his usage, but that also means that he's going to need a really positive NFL fit. I think he fits well with someone like the Bears, the Raiders who already have a dominant outside threat and Devontae Adams and could use a little more wide receiver help with, you know, Hunter Renfro probably being the top slot option, but Mac Hollins being the top uh, 
outside option outside of Devonte Adams is, is not the best. I think the Patriots are going to fall in love with a guy like this. Like he just fits the mold of draft capital that they will spend on a kid, and and they have pretty high needs for wide receiver. Obviously, I don't know that they're going to invest. Uh, what Jacoby Myers will probably draw on the market as he's been steadily improving throughout his career, has been a consistent target earner. So the Patriots might want to just look to re up on what could be another Jacoby Myers esque production immediately in his rookie season i think his ceiling is certainly much higher than jacoby don't get me wrong there but quentin johnson could probably put up very similar numbers immediately um and they obviously would then get a rookie contract instead of extending jacoby on his fifth year and have somebody with very similar production that they can then develop into a true superstar i don't think you should have corals taking Quentin Johnson. That's why I chose these top three guys. I don't think you should have quarrels taking any of these top three guys, but I ordered them in the order of which I would have their concerns. I think Jordan Addison has the least amount of concerns of this group. I think Jackson Smith and Jigba certainly is the biggest analytical darling and has the most phenomenal single season, um, but has some concerns with the health and, and obviously has some concerns with his de- development as his usage wasn't so high. And you could say the, say, say the same thing about Quentin Johnson is there are some concerns about the usage and the way that that team allocated their opportunities throughout his tenure there is they weren't really willing to afford him the opportunity to develop um, until his final season when they felt like their quarterback was capable of unloading. So, and with that said as well, they, they didn't necessarily um, up those numbers to game shattering um, potential. So maybe there is more room for improvement, but you certainly would have liked to have seen Quinton Johnson dominate that team opportunity share much earlier on in his career to really feel like he should be valued as the top asset in this class at the position. Now that we've gotten through all of the fun, we've got more fun. (laughs) We're going to answer the dynasty mailbag questions. Um, Again, if you want your questions answered, you can hit me up in the chat and in the discord by joining patreon.com anytime. Um, But to hear them live in in these episodes, which we're going to start doing more frequently uh, to get your questions answered live on air and, uh, you know, see a little bit of my thought process go through uh, verbally you know, make sure you head over to Patreon and join up so that you can be a part of the discord and get your questions asked. The first question that we had coming in was from a Patrop brother himself. It was Johnny Patrop and a name that I name dropped a little bit earlier, uh, just when talking about landing spots, but he asks Devonte Adams, is it time to sell? And I think that's a very good question. I, I think you have to look at your roster construction. Obviously, Devontae Adams is going to be very valuable for contending teams. Um, but as off season hits and it's no longer a point producing season value switches from point production to assumed value and accrued value and range of outcomes and the trajectory of future value for that that particular player obviously Devonte adams can still put up wide receiver one numbers every given week and finish as a top five option overall on the season um when all is said is done i i think One more, two more seasons is not out of the question of that production where you're getting around 17 points per game from Devontae Adams, but that's also going to have to be attached to them getting a quarterback. Um, There are rumors of Aaron Rodgers signing there and reuniting, but with the quarterback situation looking the way that it is, I think if you can get premium return on Devontae Adams, um, you should. That said, I would hold. I would hold 
unless there is some psychological games that you can play with your managers where, you know, the rumors are enough to peak that value to where Devonte is similarly valued on the market currently to where his production would bring that value up into the season. If you can convince a manager of that, I would want that return. That said, it's probably best to hold until the Raiders make that splash move at quarterback to where all of the weapons on that offense would inevitably spike and Devontae would probably be valued a little closer to where his production value would bring him in season. I do think that getting rid of aging assets and veterans, regardless of their trajectory and range of outcomes and the points that they can value your roster is a smart move whether you are contending or rebuilding but obviously if your roster isn't in a position where it's pushing for a title within Devonte adams production window which i would at max say is you know two to three more years maybe um if your team can't compete within that window then you certainly should be looking to load off more than just Devonte adams and try to really retool for a more concise window of competition meaning guys that are all peaking or producing at what would be assumed peak value um in a two to three year window and if Devonte doesn't meet your team's needs for that i would say that it's probably the best time to sell and, and you sure should be looking for as much value as possible because he's still Devonte adams Ryan V622 asks, I have the third, I guess he says, I have the third, fourth, and sixth overall pick first round in my rookie draft. I'm not too excited about this class, which I don't know why, but I'm not too excited about this class. Should I look to trade one of those picks for a 2024 first rounder? It's half PPR and only one QB. So I can't understand, I guess, why he was is a little less excited as um, obviously Stroud and Young are not there to push the third um or what would be valued as the one two in a one qb to the one zero three or the one zero four so i can maybe understand why he's a little bit sour but this class is absolutely phenomenal that said if you can trade a back half first now a sixth is you know pretty much the the cutoff for that value i would like it to be a seventh and eighth and ninth the tenth and eleventh and twelfth those types of range if you can trade those for what is perceived a future first in the next year's class that is going to be higher that's always a, a positive value move um even if there's there's so much variance in dynasty in fantasy football dynasty specifically is what i wanted to say um that you know one of my favorite moves is taking a back half first in the 9 10 11 12 range maybe adding a fourth or a third to it even and trading that for what i perceive to be a higher um first round pick in the following year so like you're asking that 2024 first rounder I really like moves like that. It helps you accrue longer value over time, and it helps you keep churning a positive roster and positive production from younger assets. And you can always use those, you know, 2024 first, because once your rookie draft is over, you can't use 2023 picks to buy points anymore, but you can always use future picks to do so. So 2024 first, moving a back half um, first into the 2024 round. I like that. And if you don't like this class, I mean, I feel bad um but then it's it's a it's a good idea but i wouldn't do it with the third or fourth i would do it with the sixth and i would even suggest if possible trading that sixth back to eighth ninth tenth getting a early second a 2024 second added to that and then using that eighth or tenth on the 2024 first if moves if moves like that are possible because the gap between six to eight in this class is certainly not that large there are so many top rated even valued wide receivers and running backs 
just past the top tier that it makes it a wash. Uh, and I mean, it, it kind of hurts for people that are holding middle round picks because two one is going to be very similar to one seven this year because of how deep this running back class is. So if you can make that move from sixth to maybe eighth, ninth, add a second and then turn eighth, ninth into a first, that's where I would want to go. But third and fourth, I'm probably keeping to use those picks, either trade them for very established high priority veterans or use them on this rookie class. Because in the third, even in one QB, you're still talking about guys like, like if it goes B. John Robinson, a Jameer Gibbs, then you have Jackson Smith and Jigba, Jordan Addison, Quinton Johnson. Like those are some very high rated prospects that you're going to want on your roster and will probably regret um, not having on your roster when you're looking at what you use those picks for in 2025. Hopping into the next question from the next Brodo brother. It's from Brodo J. He says he has a team that needs a lot of help and he did emphasize a lot of help. What does it take for me to deal the one one? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I've done, I think the number six since September of 2022. So the pre before, you know, the season started in preseason of 2022, before the collegiate season started, I've done six startups that included either 2023 picks as placeholders or the actual Debbie asset name holders themselves. One, one, whether in Superflex or one QB leagues is, has been, attached to a name it's one of the rare times that one one isn't attached to perceived value where there could be several players that go it's been attached to Bijan. in those startups Bijan robinson has not gone any later than 2-1 112 most times and no later than 2-1 and obviously that person owns that turn so it's really just a you know pick or choose a apple or oranges um so you should be looking for a top 12 certified player. And in super flex leagues, trade Bijan for a quarterback. If you can convince managers that, I shouldn't even say convince because this is market consensus. This has been market consensus for over a year and it will might even peak higher than that come draft season when he has first round draft capital attached to his name. Bijan Robinson has been the dynasty RB1 since before the 2022 season started in Superflex Leagues. That is just a matter of fact. And, you know, you, people say you can't have a Debbie asset. Well, it's not true. Nobody has ever wanted to trade 2023-1-1 for any active NFL running back, whether competing or rebuilding. The market has never wanted to do that. What you should be looking for in return is what sets you and make this a fair trade for your other manager as well. Find a contending manager that has younger assets and future picks. They can get Bijan for a competing roster in a running back that obviously their breakout windows are much earlier and their career longevity is much shorter. Um, running backs are rough position. So get a guy that is contending, maybe even a one six, a guy that is sitting at one seven, one eight that got bounced in the first round of the playoffs. Look at his roster, get his two best assets <laughs> and a future first round pick. Cause that's genuinely what it should cost to trade up essentially into a startup at one twelve. If you're sitting at two, five, 
in a super flex startup league and you want to trade to 112, it's going to cost you that 2-5, a future startup pick probably in the 7th and 10th round, and potentially another future early second or first. This is just the market. Market trading up into a top 15 asset because these assets in name alone hold so much value insulation, whether they perform well or not. Justin Herbert had a regression of a season and several other quarterbacks absolutely took off. He is a consensus dynasty three quarterback. Still, he was before the season. He's not going to be anything else probably for his entire career until, uh, unless that regression continues for several seasons. And that's just the, the name assumption. And a lot of it is sunk cost fallacy as well. But point being is market insulation on the top 12, top 15 assets, in dynasty is always very solid, especially when they are rookies, especially at a scarce position of running back, especially when all of the other running backs in that top 12 range are 27 years old and nearing the dreaded analytical age cliff. You should be getting multiple first round picks, close to two first round picks in a, in a late second round value or two solidified young, a Devonte Smith plus young assets that can truly change the trajectory of your team and put up similar production to what Bijan is probably going to put up in his first year. And that would also be fair market value to the other manager. He gets what could push him from that one eight to a one or, you know, a, a first seed in the playoffs and, and has a solidified di- the dynasty RB one, but you get two dynasty wide receiver ones or a dynasty wide receiver one and a high end dynasty RB two or a high end, you know, a top 15 dynasty wide receiver, a dynasty tight end one. That's the type of value that you should be looking. And I would not take anything less for Bijan. And if people are offering less, I would draft Bijan because he's the last true generational running back talent we are going to see. Running back by committee is becoming more popular in the NCAA than it is in the NFL. You're not going to see analytical guys like Bijan continuously. And we're even seeing it with some darlings that we attached freshman value to during Bijan's collegiate career, guys like Trevion Henderson, guys like uh, Quinshawn Judkins, who broke out this year, was sharing with Zach Evans, though. So you're going to see good prospects, yes, but I don't think we're going to see another true generational prospect like Bijan Robinson. And the word generational is not just for talent wise, but because of the way that football is changing. That may have been long winded, but yeah, get yourself a stud. <laughs> Mark Ham asks, I have a late first and an early second this year and no first next year. A late first and an early second this year and no first next year, which means I can't really afford to sell and tank. I understand that. I have a team that can compete next year, um, but I am have almost no depth and a lot of my guys are getting old. With that being said, should I trade my top round picks for established guys or keep in draft? I'm looking to get rid of most of my assets after the 2023 season obviously looking to retool, I would assume. So this is my last year. If I had my 2024 first, I would have sold all my big time guys. He puts in parentheses, Devonte, Keenan Allen, Jonathan Taylor already. It's 12 team, super flex, half PPR. So I, I think Ham, Mark Ham brings up a really good point here. If I, and it was kind of in his final sentence, if I had my 2024 first, if he possessed his own fate controlled 2024 first, he would be willing to sell because that means the points are off his roster and he can increase the value of his own first, increasing the value of his roster, increasing the value of his rookie draft pick. And 2024 one, one would obviously be Caleb Williams that can turn a team around in super flex leagues just for the value insulation alone. 
I understand what, that's kind of where that mentality comes from. So not having fate controlled uh, future firsts makes rebuilding a lot more difficult. Um, one of the first things that I try to do is obviously get that first back um, before unloading a bunch of assets into, you know, that land of zero production where you can just kind of flatline um, below max points for and ensure that that one one it's a, you know, a dirty strategy, but it's a fair one. And it's it's the proper way to rebuild is by acquiring as many accruing assets as possible while reducing your point floor. Um, if you are truly in a position to compete, if that is truly where you think that you are and, and that these you know, because because the guys that you listed aren't necessarily going to fall off the floor um, next season, but potentially the one after. And Keenan Allen is somebody that I'm legitimately willing to keep on my roster until he retires. I think he's just going to have a Larry Fitzgerald career trajectory, continue to produce into his 30s as long as he's healthy. We love Keenan Allen. Um, if you truly think that your roster is a top four roster and, and do some serious, you know, message me and we'll, we'll talk about it in DMs, but do some serious um, combing of your opponent's rosters and, you know, use some ADP tools and, and some rankings tools to see who has more of the top rated guys and things like that and who has less of them. So, you know, you can kind of gauge who you're attacking for trades as well, but really do a deep combing. And if you believe you have a top four roster and those picks are going to be late um, in future years as well, and you don't have your own 2024 first, I would suggest moving chips in to try to have more established production so that I can run the tables in, you know, my last year before retooling and win that championship. And if you don't think you have that roster and it takes some soul searching, then it's, it is time to, to look for, uh, look for trade partners. And that's where that kind of assessing of your opponents comes into play, where go after the guys that are kind of in that middling window with a bit of aging assets that aren't really ready to rebuild, but are looking for a little bit more of a push. Give them some of those aging assets that when they do fall off that cliff, or if they do fall off that cliff, the draft capital that you received in return is now spiking because their rosters are bottoming out. That would be how I would approach that. But it, it's also, it really is roster construction because you don't have that 2024 fake controlled first. You have to, if you can make the playoffs and make a run and acquire even more, you know, game breaking assets with the draft capital that you do have, then do it. Dynasty should still be about winning. One of the biggest problems in Dynasty, and I'm guilty of it as well, don't get me wrong, but one of the biggest problems in Dynasty is managers attempt to accrue value over winning. Yes, it helps you rebuild, but you should always want to win. Accruing value shouldn't be done over a 10-year span. You should be funneling it into a window of dominance. Okay, so you want to win still. And if your roster is ready to do that, it's not a bad idea to go through some lean years without the top draft capital while you retool and rebuild if you want a championship in the process. Always try to win. And if your draft capital, that's what rookie picks are for, are for buying championships or buying future championships, you know, but they're always should be used as currency to acquire what is going to help your roster in the best fashion. And that may be rookie sometimes. And, and maybe there's a, a rookie that falls to that late one twelve area that you were talking of. That is really going to help kind of push you over that spot. But I would keep these picks until they're on the clock, see who is there, use their heightened value for an established veteran. If you're already looking at a retool window beyond 2023 and, and try to push for that chip. If your roster is in that position, because we want to win games. Yes. Accruing value is nice and having a bunch of pretty rookies on your roster looks great, but 
always try to win. And as you said, you think it can compete, then I think you should use your draft capital to put yourself in a position where you are the most dominant team on your league. Kai from TJ. <laughs> I love my transitions in these questions. They're just so blunt. <laughs> Kai from TJ. Or Kai, yeah. Kai TJ bluntly asks, how do I get rid of Daniel Jones? And I'm going to say, bluntly, trade him. I mean, his his KTC value is is pretty stable right now. Um, he, He's valued within the top 16 quarterbacks in Superflex Leagues. I would trade Daniel Daniel Jones. If you truly don't think what we saw this year from a point-producing perspective is is worth it, then I would trade him. And trade him for market consensus value. And if you can't get market consensus value, if your entire league is looking at Daniel Jones in the same way that you are, where your league market value is like, ah, how do I get rid of this guy? I don't want to pay anything for him. He's not useful to me. And it's a one QB league. And you know, obviously, that reduces QB value in general. If that's not the case, hold him. Hold him because... Even if the Giants do not re-sign Daniel Jones, I think a new contract, because it is coming, it might come from someone else, but it is coming. I think a new contract is going to peak his value even a little more. Um, This isn't the deepest quarterback class as far as rookies are concerned, so a lot of quarterback value is going to maintain um, pretty stable. Uh, Not much volatility probably through the quarterback market this year. Obviously, Tom Brady retired, but that didn't have much effect on it either. Um, So... Not much volatility. He, he will probably maintain that value all offseason. If you can't get that value, hold him for a 17.7 points per game. That's still good bi-week replacement level in one QB leagues. It's excellent QB2 value in super flex leagues. I, I think Daniel Jones is a fine asset in, in super flex leagues. And if nobody in your league wants him, then you have to hold for point production alone. Production is still value. A lot of people forget that in dynasty leagues. This is where I messed up. Jake from IT. I was mixing their names together. This is our last mailbag question before we hop off, and we are running at the hour, so I think we're doing pretty good, pretty good. Have the seventh pick in a 10-man dynasty league, Jake from IT asks. It's a super flex. Going into its second year, QB and wide receivers are locks, but I really need some help in the running back room. Should I be targeting a rookie or try to trade for a running back like Madison or Rashad White? Well, with the seventh pick overall, the rookie seventh pick, you definitely should be trading for a lot more value than Rashad White or Alexander Madison. I mean, that is legitimately around the Dalvin Cook. Uh, you're not quite in Christian McCaffrey's zone, but maybe Jonathan Taylor with how his 2022 season has discounted him heavily. Travis Etienne, like you're in that range of dynasty running back prospects as far as the market is concerned. Because in that 1-7 is where those really tear breaker guys for that that um 2023 running back class goes but guys that are going to be borderline rb1 just off of value assumption alone your zach evans your kendry millers your sean tuckers um tank uh bigsby even jameer gibbs if he falls past the perceived wide receiver prospects that are in front of him obviously he would be a one six one seven round in a first round pick so those running back prospects are going to enter the NFL before ever playing a snap with much more perceived value than guys like Alexander Madison or Rashad white um, and, and close to perceived values because of the, the shifts that the, you know, incoming rookie names, Bijan Robinson, Jameer Gibbs will push guys down a little bit of guys like Dalvin cook, who are just falling out of the Aaron Jones, who are just falling out of the RB one tier um, due to a lot of these perceived, you know, hyped up rookies. So, Trading for a guy like Alexander Madison or Rashad White, I love it in theory, but not at that cost. I would throw a third, a late second at Alexander Madison. He's actually somebody that I think is an incredible buy low. Um, 
the same said for Rashad White, but I'm not even considering early seconds for those guys, not with the way that the market is perceiving them. And, you know, when you're in new leagues, like you said, you know, entering your second season, it is very difficult to get all of your managers to kind of uh, understand how important these market shifts are. Um, and if they don't have that same perception, then those market shifts aren't important, right? And, and I don't mean that for what the prospects produce for your roster or what the players produce for your roster or, you know, how you can manipulate a build. But I mean, you can only attack the market with the way that your league perceives it. Market consensus is fine and everything. If 7 million people say that this player is RB1, that's great and agreed upon. But if 12 league mates all think he's RB24 and that's all they're willing to pay for him, then what can you do? Um, So with that said, I think using that pick, on a player that is probably a better prospect and and will give more production and more longevity than Rashad White or Alexander Madison is a plus move. If not trading it for similarly valued market consensus players, Travis Etienne, Aaron Jones, Dalvin Cook, if you need that production right away, I think that's maybe uh, the better cause. But honestly, it's probably the most positive value thing just to use that pick. All right, folks, we did it. Solo web, done, boom, flex on him. That was fun. <laughs> it was great. Mailbag finished. Profiles finished. News finished. Little conference breakdown. Coaching news. Boom, bang, boom. You know where to find me at PsychWardFF. You can find the boys at BrotoFF Tim, at BrotoFF Mike, at BrotoFF Jason, at BrotoFF Casanova, at Broto Fantasy, at FF by Broto. We are all over the internet. It's an army of Broto. Please, again, I got to bring it up. Much love to the Patreons. Thank you for all the mailbag questions and head over to patreon.com slash Broto Fantasy to join us for as little as $3 a month and you can get all these amazing extras like the Discord is always providing off-season betting content for the other sports and we have DFS optimizers in-season, Dynasty access to yours truly. Uh, you get it all. The best community in in all of uh sports <laughs> in that discord so much love to those guys and head on over to check that out thanks for tuning in you know what it is much love much respect